This is CX of M Radio, the voice of customer experience professionals. Hello, and welcome to another World of UX podcast. This is your host, Darren Hood. Thanks for taking the time to join us on today and special welcome to those of you listening for the first time. Today, I thought we were going to go back to the Sinister series, but decided to take a slight detour. We're going to do another mixed segment, if you will. We're going to talk a little bit about some of the things we've been covering. I'm actually going to revisit one topic from the Sinister series, but also borrowing from the recent episode where we were talking about portfolio related elements. And today I want to talk about what I'm going to refer to as the Sinister Portfolio Potpourri <laughs> session. Well, I still want to talk about some things associated with portfolios, but want to look at it from the perspective of the Sinister series. There are so many, I'm just going to call them devastating things happening in user experience today. And sometimes people talk to me and they say, do you think it's going to get better? And I, on one hand, I, I just, I like to just rest in the fact that it can get better. I just come across so many people who have no interest in it getting better, frankly, that I sort of just don't really worry about it getting better as much as I do doing my part to help it to get better. So can we can sit around and talk about what we think is going to happen. And then your toxic positivity folks, it's definitely going to get better, Darren. Let's hope for the best. Hope for the best. You can hope all you want. If you don't do anything to make things better, it simply isn't going to get better. And unfortunately, that's where I think we are today. I mean, think about it. And some of you have heard me say this before. UX has been what I call under siege since about 2011, 2012. It has been in a position where people have been trying to turn it into something that it is not, where people have been rebranding things for their own personal gain. And people let them get away with it. And so as people have been letting people get away with things and endorsing these types of activities, it has really continued to put the discipline on a downward spiral. So when people come to me and say, hey, Darren, you're just doomsaying, things are going to get better. No. Um, When you see a siren on a police car, do you say that they're trying to be Debbie Downers? When you see a, a siren on a fire truck, do you turn a, 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 a deaf ear to the sirens and a blinded eye to the fires that they're going to put out? Do you, I mean, we, there are some of us today, not a lot of us, but there are some of us that keep sounding the alarms about things that are going on in this discipline that are not in any of our best interest. And instead of appreciating the alarm that's being sounded, people try to spin it and make it look like it's something that it's not. And it's not just the people you would expect, but a lot of people who have actually been in the discipline a long time, and there are people that are making a complete living off of trying to sell people on what's going on in UX today, even though it's detrimental to everyone's career-oriented well-being. Uh, it's just, It's really sad. It's really sad. I will never apologize for sounding a siren. I'm not crying wolf. 
Remember that old fable about the boy who cried wolf, the little story about the boy who cried wolf and kept crying wolf and there was no wolf. Then when the wolf came, he tried to tell him, but nobody would listen to him. Um, there's another story of the same ilk. Chicken little, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. And and we have this, people try to spin little tales about people like me sounding off on things like this and try to make us sound like the boy who cried wolf and try to make us sound like Chicken Little. When I started saying that UX was under siege in 2011, people said I was crazy. They said that, oh, why don't you shut up? Why don't you get out of here? Or they just, they would just ignore me. If you ignore a police car that's driving through traffic, you ignore the siren and keep driving, you could lose your life. If you ignore the siren on the, love these metaphors, I do. <laughs> if you ignore the siren on the fire truck or on an ambulance and, and you fail to pull to the side of the road, then you're going to actually, not only can you suffer physical harm and and potentially, I mean, it, it could be life-threatening to ignore them, but you're also creating a problem and you're, you're the accomplice of the complications that arise because the people that the folks with the sirens are trying to help won't get the help they need. This is, this is what's going on today. So I do not apologize at all. And, and uh, I don't have to be appreciated to do what I do. I, I know the value of what I do. So I go out and I do it. And so I'm always going to stand for what I call the integrity of the discipline. I am always going to say what I know needs to be said. I know that I won't be appreciated the way that I should. I know I won't be recognized the way that I should. And there's a lot of people who've been in UX either close to the same amount of time as me, or in some cases, even more that don't appreciate it. And, and that's really sad. And they rally people after them. And, and when you throw the isms into it, the racism, the sexism, the ageism, and all these other things, when you mix up all the isms in a pot, people have a tendency to chase after whatever, how can we say this, Whatever, however the isms favor them. So the, the sexist stuff, uh, and it's funny, the, I had somebody talk to me recently, they, they got upset because of the work that we were doing with the American Board of Design. They said, you folks don't have any females on that board. I'm thinking, well, uh, yeah, you're right. There aren't. There aren't any females on the board. But that's something that we are working on. It's something we have tried to address. But it's not the priority. The priority is that we need to have some, some type of way for people to prove that they are qualified to do UX work. We need to arrive at some type of licensure so that we can eliminate the posers, the retrofits, the upstarts, and the impact they're having on the discipline. If nobody does anything about it, the discipline will die. It can. It can die. Other disciplines have died. They still exist. Instructional design still exists, but it's a shell of its former self. And it's because the same exact thing happened over there. There are some fields where we don't see the posers, retrofits, and upstarts taking over because there's too much at stake and because they have licensure in place and people have to actually prove that they're qualified in order to do the work. So you don't see people destroying 
the medical field. You don't see people destroying things like hairdressing. You don't see people destroying the plumbing industry. There's a lot of different fields where people have to get some type of licensure, some type of proof that they're qualified to do what they do. And so you won't you won't see those fields being destroyed because they have the, the mechanisms in place to help guard against that. In UX, we don't. And we can't put certain things that are really of the politically correct type of, of elements. We can't exalt those over the purpose of the organization. If every company in the world began to take these little things that people complain about, that, quite frankly, are extremely biased in their nature. And there is an oriented, and that's where I'm going to go in a minute. I'll, I'll get back to that, to that point. If people focus on those things, which some companies do, it actually causes the purpose and the scope of the organization to become askew. And now things are all out, out of place because you've taken your eyes off of the prize. You've taken your eyes off the bullseye and you start focusing on something else. So I like what we're doing with the American Board of Design. It, it's critical. We'll get everything done that needs to get done in its time. The good thing that is now that's going on now is that the licensing the test, I should say, for the licensing is in place. It's live. People can take the test now. And the long-term goal is to help provide that type of structure for the discipline already in place in the United States, working on it abroad. We, we want to have it in place so that everybody benefits. I mean, if everybody's qualified, everybody wins. One of the problems we have in UX today is we have a lot of people who aren't qualified and they're getting these positions and they end up not bringing value. And when they don't bring value, then people in leadership eventually see it. And you see what you see now with the massive layoffs and, and things like that. And one of the main reasons that they're doing it is because a lot of UX teams don't bring any value and they're not bringing value because a lot of people are engaging in UX theater instead of doing UX work. But that that's something I'll go down a, a rabbit hole if I if I keep talking about that. Again, I love what we're doing with the American Board of Design. Uh, I was having a conversation with somebody and the person was so focused on what they want to say. Please be it known. I am willing to have a conversation with anybody about pretty much anything, but it has to be a conversation. It has to be a, a dialogue that's going in two directions where we are hearing what each other is saying, where we're understanding what the other parties are saying, everybody understands everybody and everybody's respecting everybody and not so determined to have a particular point of view that you can't hear what anybody else is saying. That's not a conversation. <laughs> so once you get to that point, it's, it, it's over. So, so pretty sad stuff. And that's a sinister thing that's at work today because so many people are either biased, neurotic or both. And so a lot of times we can't talk about things. We can't talk about the qualifications of the discipline. We can't talk about the direction that the discipline should go. We can't do a lot of these things because of the the different biases and and really <laughs> big-headedness and things of that nature, a gross lack of, I'm about to say something I haven't said before, but a gross lack of emotional intelligence on behalf of people in the community. We can't make progress until we, until we agree on certain things. So... At any rate, uh, let's go ahead and dive in to the Sinister Portfolio por uh, Potpourri session. I got a couple of preliminary things I want to address beside what I just said. And then we're going to talk about a few topics. As mentioned, 
I, I am revisiting something from the from a previous sinister episode, uh, but we want to make sure that we address these things. So a bit of potpourri because again, we're all over the place. That's what the potpourri sessions usually are. So two preliminary things I want to address. One, before we get into the main part of today's discussion, I recently explained that one of the reasons I don't review portfolios, uh, UX portfolios, not a, a favorite thing of mine to do. Do I do it? Yes. Do I do it? Do I have sessions where, hey, bring your portfolio and I'm going to review it? Nope. You will never find me doing that. I think there's a time to review a portfolio. I do see portfolios pretty much for the most part. It's a necessary evil. Uh, they have their place, but I am, you would never, you never see me do it, nor will you ever see me have a session where, hey, come on out and I'm going to review portfolios. And, and part of the reason why, and this here is a sinister trait that's extremely common in UX today. And I can't remember how much I talked about this, but I do believe I mentioned it before. But there's there's some people in the US community, huge pet peeve of mine. They go from person to person. They go from meetup to meetup. They ask for the same advice. How's my portfolio? What can I do? Or they just ask sometimes general questions about what they should do with regard to growing, advancing, managing their career in UX. And I have seen people on multiple occasions. I have seen people, they'll go to person A and ask a question. They'll go to person B, ask the same question. They'll go to person C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, and K and ask the same question. And they and I watch people. I have seen people. They respond to the information they get in response to their question. They respond as if they never talked to anybody else. It's almost like they're doing a research project and, and trying to get a sample size of 20 or something and ask people a question and get feedback. But... It's like they never take action on the information that they receive. This is one of the reasons I don't, because I've seen too many people do it. To do that is really disrespectful of our time. It's very disrespectful of our time. And then there's some other elements. I mean, people don't realize how insulting and demeaning it is. I, I saw somebody do that recently, and it just reminded me of how many times I've seen it. And how much I really detest it and really how unproductive that is. And, and, and I thought about the insulting and demeaning factor. We answered this question. <laughs> Me and a group of people answered this question before. Why are you asking this question like you never got an answer? And, and it just reminds me how this is very sinister and it, it doesn't have to be intentional. Whether it's intentional or not. Sinister doesn't come with intentionality. A person can be sinister and never intended on being that. It doesn't make it any less sinister. It's, it's still sinister. It needs to cease. So there's a lot of people, and I am aware, they are grossly unaware that this is a sinister mindset, but I'm shining a light on it. So hopefully that will change for some. These people, one of the reasons why I call this a sinister mindset they're basically taking advantage of the kindness 
of people who are willing to help. And, and the last time I saw this, I saw a bunch of people just, they're willing to offer their advice and, and the person just sitting back and taking it. And, and I know the person has asked other people the same exact question before and they're sitting back like they never asked anybody. I'm like, wow, we gave you perfect answer before. I just happened to be at this one. And so it, it's something folks that shouldn't be done. And, and I'm not for those types of sessions. That's why sometimes I don't let people take my time. Hey, you got 30 minutes. I don't do it that often. I, I, I simply don't because of that, because they ask you a question. People have you in one-on-one -on -one session. They have you all to themselves and then sit there and ask you something. They've already asked X number of people. And one of the things I found that's very interesting is that the people who get the advice don't really know, they don't have a filter, a gauge. They don't know how to evaluate the advice they're getting. That, and that's happening with a lot of these people who don't realize how insulting and demeaning it is. But if you don't know how to evaluate what you're getting, it almost brings to mind, is it even worth asking the question if you don't know? Which, I mean, we need to get answers. Any of us, when we're trying to learn something or trying to figure something out, you go to people that are qualified to give you input, and then you take action. You don't just keep going around and talking to people as if you never talked to anybody. I it, it, This is something that needs to cease. It flat out needs to cease. And, and again, for me, I don't let people take up my time like that. And I get requests all the time. And I don't have time, number one, I don't have time. Uh, but if I did, and, and, and in the not too distant future, when I finish my dissertation, when I finish a few other things, I'm going to have some time. Guess what I'm not going to add to my plate? Talking to people who are not in the business of receiving, taking expert advice and acting on it. Uh, it it's draining for on, on my side of the fence. It's very, very draining. You do not want to be a part of this sinister trait. So make sure you're not only genuine with your requests, but make sure that you're not out here engaging in what amounts to crowdsourcing information about your UX career. It, it It's not, if you don't apply it, it's not going to help you. If you don't learn how to judge what you receive, it's not going to help you. So, and that's, so we really need to, uh, people who are getting started out, be in the business of building yourself up. No, please know and understand that there's a lot of misinformation out there. A lot of what you get is going to be wrong. So find out who knows their stuff and then gravitate to them so you can get information and act on it. Move. And when you do that, then you'll be in a lot better position. Topic number two. I'm not doing my little bells today. Uh, and this is one that I'm revisiting. But, but I mentioned when we talk about portfolios, we begin to segue a little bit here that there's people who they see portfolios as being a main type of currency among UXers. And it, this is not true at all, as well as I had somebody who reached out to me recently and said, yeah, I really, I know I need to get a mentor in order to be successful. It's funny the things that newer UXers are believing, are being told and believing that they need to have in place in order to establish and be successful at maintaining and managing your UX career. Interestingly, when you talk to 30, 40, 50 of them, none of them are thinking about having a strong awareness of and learning more about the fundamentals 
of UX. It's all about uh, knowing tools. It's all about getting a mentor. It's all about having a portfolio. Those are not the most important things. They, they don't even come close to really thriving in UX. So, so, but when people are fed that, they start their career off on a roller coaster of misinformation that is very unkind to the people that embrace these things. So please keep that in mind. Uh, but again, if you have that mindset that the portfolio is the main currency, please know you're going to be in a state of psychological and cognitive bias. That's the roller coaster I refer to because those things simply aren't true. The optimized value only pertains to organizations with lower UX maturity. In other words, if you think that a portfolio is the most critical thing, the most critical contributing factor to your success as a UX professional, the correlating mindset only exists in companies that have low to no UX maturity. So now you're real. Now you started off with a bad foundation. Then you go into an organization that, that is not only do they have proper UX maturity, but they're going in the opposite direction. So that's going to hurt the individuals that work there as well. So it's, so it's critical, but from a practitioner perspective, let's flip it a little bit aside from what's going on with the organizations. When you're a practitioner, that, that, that issue of the portfolio being the most important thing, it's more applicable to people who are just starting out. I, I was talking to somebody recently who works for a nameless company that was talking about how when they interview more senior people, they didn't ask to see a portfolio. When they talk to more junior people, they did want to see the portfolio. And I'm thinking, wow, that's really wise because, I mean, I, I, I had a job that I can't remember if I mentioned this or not recently, but there was a job that I was uh, hoping to get an interview for a few months ago. And and the person said, okay, so when you get a chance, uh, shoot over your portfolio. And I'm going, wow, you want to see my portfolio? And I, I didn't send it and I didn't send the link. And after three days, I finally say, you know what? I need to let them know what's on my mind. And I reach out to the person and I let them know that uh, I decided to withdraw because if I send my portfolio, all I'm doing is opting in to a, to a, an aesthetic or visual design competition, which I'm not going to do, which is what many portfolios are. And I believe we've mentioned that as being a sinister factor that's at work in UX today. Um, I'm not opting into that for several reasons, some of which we'll mention as we get to the other topics here today, but one topic in particular. But if you're just starting out, it is going to be important to have a portfolio because most jobs are going to ask for it. That's the necessary evil component that I talk about. But you need to show what you know as an entry-level person in UX and what you bring to the table with regard to work you've done and things you've been exposed to so companies can, can understand what they're getting into when they bring this new person on board. Something I have said in a previous episode that I want to bring back to mind here, please know and understand, every entry-level person, on, on top of the fact that entry-level positions amount only to up to 5%, 3 to 5% of all 
open UX jobs, which the people at the boot camps and a lot of other folks are not telling people this when they tell them how they need to come in the UX. They're not saying, yeah, hey, come on in the UX. This is great. Oh, by the way, there's only very, 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 very few positions for entry level people. They're not telling people that. And they're painting this picture that that the grass is mega green and it's really not. So, and it's always going to be that way. It's like that for every discipline in the world. Entry-level positions are usually grossly outnumbered by their counterpart positions at a higher seniority level. So that shouldn't be a shock to anybody, (laughs) number one. But when you are just starting out, it is good to be able to understand, to see, to talk about the work and see what you're doing. Uh, But you don't have a lot to put in there. So keep that in mind too. And, and and folks should stop scratching and clawing, putting everything under the sun that you've done in your portfolio. That it, It's really sort of silly. Even, even for entry-level folks, it can be sort of silly because you're entry-level. What, what work have you done? What projects have you really worked on? So, uh, and, and entry-level people don't have a lot of things they can add. So we understand that. It's a bit of a catch-22. I hope you understand that. But whatever you can provide to help communicate who you are, by all means, you want to be able to put that together. But that's where it has great value. For a person like me who's been doing UX work for 28 years, as we segue into the next topic, not only is it not that critical, but portfolios are discriminatory vehicles. They trigger facilitation and bias. This is this is the next topic today. Portfolios are vehicles for discrimination, folks. And the people who been doing the work a long time, you don't want to see our work. It it spans so much time and people want to see, they expect everything to be today, reflective of today. Well, but if you talk to somebody who's been doing UX over X number of years, their portfolio was never going to be uh, just fully reflective of today. And there's going to be things that are going to be in the portfolio of a, of an, of an experienced person that that's not going to really move the needle when you have a, a hiring manager who is on the, who's really given to bias, who's triggered by bias, who's governed by bias. Uh, It's really sad. And so I remember as an example, I remember once that I show my, my portfolio to somebody. And the person, and unbeknownst to them, that's what they were looking at. They, and so not like I tricked them, but somebody said, you were tricking them. No, I didn't. I, I just happened to show them some stuff and, and just show it to them. I wasn't trying to get a job. This was just a conversation that we were having. I'm going to be fair and explain that. And I just valued this person's opinion about some of the visual-oriented things that I had done over the course of my career. person I talked to was extremely skilled at visual design. What I didn't tell the person was that the designs they were looking at were over 10 years old. Some of them were 15 years old. (laughs) Some of the things that they were looking at, I was just pretty proud of that work. There were a bunch of logos in there included in it. Uh, Interestingly, logos that were still being used by the organizations that I designed them for. Yep, I did. That's how far I went with my visual design. I used to design logos. I, I used to do the everything. I used to create all the assets. I used to do all the, the copywriting. I did everything for a lot of people's websites back in the day, including making sure that they had a nice sound and, and valuable, intuitive user experience. I oversaw 
all of it for a lot of projects that I worked on over the course of my career, especially earlier on. And so the person proceeded to say they, they liked the logos that they saw, but they were extremely critical beyond that. And here's something else that happens, especially when you get into visual design, even though it's not limited to visual design, this can be applicable to UX design as a whole is that there's always a hundred different ways to design something because there's a hundred different ways to design something. And the person that you might be talking to the person who might be evaluating your work might view things differently. Uh, and, and, and keep in mind, pause there for a moment. This is not based on the, the business requirements this is not based on the business goals and marrying the business needs and using needs. And that's the problem with the visual design component and how visual designers have overrun UX. They bring this extremely heightened level of subjectivity into the work when UX requires a heightened level of objectivity. Because when you're doing visual design, everything's an expression and there are no rules. When you do work in UX, there's a ton of rules and the more subjective you are, the more you can distance yourself from your user base and from their mental models. So it's really interesting. And so that's what came out of this, this little discussion. You know, I knew the designs were dated, uh, but the person who, and I say dated only literally that they were over 10 years old, but the person had all kinds of mega critical things to say, mind you, none of which None of the criticism that the person had actually impacted the user experience. None of the things that the person said made the user experience more intuitive, made the user experience better, helped to facilitate more alignment with mental models. None of those things were impacted. And that person, who, by the way, they were good at visual design, they had just started doing UX and really didn't really have a lot of understanding of, of what they were doing and how it applied to UX. I knew that. So it was pretty interesting. It, it's funny. That, and this is what happens with portfolios that, that people, when they, when portfolios are aesthetically heavy, it triggers a lot of times the subjectivism of the reviewer. They're not looking at it to see how well a person achieved a user centered perspective in their work, but whose work really makes me go, wow, whose work is really popping. That's visual design. That's the visual design world. And unfortunately, because of what's going on with portfolios and what people are looking for in portfolios, that's what they're looking for. That's what gets triggered. And until that ceases, that sinister element gets brought under control, brought under wraps, managed more efficiently and more ethically, it's going to continue to, to generate problems for us in the discipline today. So sorry to have to tell you that, folks, but it is true. Next topic. Sometimes people will say, people, uh, let, let me see your best work. Or they'll say, put your best work in your portfolio when they're trying to guide people. Very misguided. Very misdirected. Going to be a problem. A portfolio is rarely a reflection of a person's best work. It's simply supposed to be a person telling a story to help someone understand the person that they're trying to evaluate. 
best work will not always make it for several reasons. It, it may not make it to the portfolio because the person just couldn't share anything. Maybe it's NDA related. Uh, it, it's not going to make it to the portfolio because a person just didn't have an opportunity to gather some of the more rudimentary elements and then collect them to put them in the portfolio. But whether a person's best work is in the portfolio or not, it should simply tell the story. As long as the portfolio tells a story and represents the the person in the best possible light, the job is over. So this, this best work thing, it's a myth. And, and folks need to like leave that alone. Stop trying to show people your best work. It's not likely that that's going to happen. And on top of that, to make that matter even worse, <laughs> uh, your best work, my best work, may or may not resonate with a potential employer that you're engaging with. So, so that's another problem when people, man, I showed them my best work and they didn't like it. Well, because it doesn't match what they're looking for. It, it, the use cases that are in one person's portfolio may not match the use cases that the person is trying to evaluate when they're a hiring manager. The, and th these are the, the ongoing issues, the problems associated with portfolios and everybody's saying, let me see your portfolio is not really addressing. And, and it should be addressed beforehand. So when you do see a person's portfolio, you can look at it objectively, ethically, and in a way that reflects sense. Because a lot of the times what people are looking at, it, it doesn't make any sense at all. When you consider these optimized, aesthetically pleasing examples, when should that be in your portfolio? Because truly the best UX portfolio is going to be sans wonderfully aesthetic uh, examples it, because we don't work on the presentation layer. So if we don't work on the presentation layer, Unless you're showing somebody how things turned out, um, it's amazing how you can look at some UX portfolios and everything in it is just polished. That's bad. <laughs> that, mean, that means that uh, uh, folks are not seeing uh, uh, what's going on. And, and I mentioned before, too, please stop putting pictures of all the stickies on the wall. Nobody can read it. And, and, and a, a picture of a bunch of stickies is not really telling a story. It, it shows that you folks did something workshop oriented and you put a bunch of stickies on the wall. If we can't read it and don't know what actually went into that, that activity of putting the stickers, stickies on the wall, it doesn't really make any sense. I, I even, I'm reminded of a time that someone asked me, Darren, what do you think is the most valuable, the valuable thing that a UX person can do? And, and I knew the person was asking me a loaded question and I knew that it was going to be jaded and, I proceeded to say something other than what they wanted to hear, which I don't even remember what it was that I said. What I do remember is what they said the most important thing was. And they said it was stickies. It was putting stickies on a board. I didn't see a sticky. Now, remember, I started doing this work in 1995. I didn't see a sticky. When, when I heard the person said this, I just my jaw just dropped. I didn't see a sticky. Until about 2014 or 2015. Never saw a single sticky on a wall prior to that. So the person was trying to tell me how important stickies were and getting all of these, having these workshop and these 
extra these sprints and these little exercises so you can get stickies from everybody and do your affinity workshops and all these things. No, no, it, it, it didn't, folks. And so, no, stickies are relatively new. They're about 10 years old. Uh, some of you may have seen stickies before that. Wasn't that widely spread? And don't forget, even if you did see stickies, where somebody worked has a lot more weight than whatever you did. And and so when you, you talk to people, they'll tell you, well, we didn't have stickies. And somebody else will say, oh, we had stickies. And they'll tell you when they had, when they didn't have them. It, it wasn't. It wasn't a thing. You didn't see them in books. Uh, nothing. It, it wasn't that important. So I just thought I'd share that little that little story because I think it's funny. <laughs> but uh, so your best work only show it as after we did all of this stuff. This is where we arrived, and don't show it like it's the the piece de resistance in your in your portfolio because there's a lot of stuff that led to that. Because when you do that, if your if your portfolio is all polished and pretty, it's not very UXy. And a lot of companies they want to see that, but just know what you're representing. Just throw that out there. Now, most companies cannot properly relate to a well-structured and well-presented portfolio. So if you decide to present, and this is a sinister component, you get punished for doing the right thing, basically. So please know that when you do the right thing, there's going to be some people that are going to ignore you because you did the right thing. And they're going to embrace the person who does the other stuff because they don't really understand UX, which is why we say that companies that don't know how to have people that don't know how to evaluate portfolios properly, that's usually because it's a it's reflective of a low UX maturity level. So just keep that in mind. And then lastly, my last point for today, the perfect portfolio will never substitute for being well-versed and qualified. Remember, earlier I was saying, I made a statement earlier about people who think that UX portfolios are, or portfolios, I should say, are the most critical currency for the UX professional. It, it, it is not, never will be. You need to be well-versed. You need to be qualified. And you always need to be trying to becoming your absolute best self in this discipline. You can be well-versed, well-qualified, and you can walk yourself through anything. You can you can always be able to express and explain who you are. You can express and explain the work that you're trying to do. That trumps everything. And, and that's something that we need to get back to, which is being ignored today. It's sad that the contrary is the mirage that prevails, uh, but we just need to be more courageous about that. And the more people get educated, the higher companies' UX maturity levels go, the better of a position you'll be in. Say, you know what? Let's get some people here that really know what they're doing. And when we start to see things flip, if that starts to flip, then piggybacking on what I said earlier, things are getting better. And But until we see that, things are not getting better. Folks, they simply aren't. So, but that is it. For the Sinister Portfolio Potpourri <laughs> session as we combine uh, the Sinister elements with Potpourri, we hope you got something out of this. We hope it helps you to go forward as a UX professional. But until next time, it is time to sign off. So this is Darren Hood, the host of The World of UX. Again, wishing everybody all the best. And until next time, happy UXing, everybody. Thanks for joining us for this session of CX of M Radio. 
Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit cxofm.org for more resources.